1: Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 9 and 10.
0: Tonight we're going to study a a very interesting verse. We're in verse 9 of the book of Jude. Now it's interesting, a very curious fact about this particular passage Is that it's almost impossible to find a sermon or an article on it. No one wants to touch this one with a 10-foot pole. It's a strange, strange allusion by Jude. Here we have the the brother of James, both of them uh, apparently brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ, writing this very interesting epistle. Uh, Each writes an interesting epistle, but Jude particularly focusing on apostasy. When he gets to verse 9, he makes an allusion that if you're reading your scriptures, can really throw you, because you will not find uh, any direct uh, support for where Jude gets this. But here we have a, a dispute between the chief of the angels and the chief of the wicked spirits. So you got the two top guns at each other. If, it, if that isn't bad enough, the subject of their dispute the more we think about it, the more disturbing it is. Why should they care, either one of them, about the body of Moses? Uh, Jude sort of just tackles this as if you all remember this, don't you? And he makes a point from it, right? Verse 9, Jude continues, yeah, Well, picking up in verse 8 just to give you continuity from the last time. In like manner also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. We should probably review that. Titus tells us in his epistle, chapter 3, verse 2, that we should speak evil of no man. You and I have no problem with that. It seems like good sound advice. You don't speak evil of anyone. You and I wouldn't think of applying that admonition to Satan. By the time we're through tonight, you'll understand why I get so uncomfortable when we sing certain songs. You know, I'm so glad the devil's so mad and all that sort of thing. I, after, after seeing what Jude says, you'll get a little, perhaps, a little uncomfortable. But verse 8 summarizes the previous verses in highlighting three basic marks of apostasy. Defiling the flesh, despising dominion, and railing at dignities. And we have talked a lot about that. Verse 8 actually is a summary that stands between verses 5, 6, and 7, which summarize corporate illustrations. And uh, we're going to discover, when we get down to verse 11, we have three individual illustrations. The structure of Jude, we've talked about that before, so I won't review it now, because we'll talk more about that next time too. But, but basically, uh, it's interesting, the whole thing is symmetrical, conceptually, around verse 11. But the point is, is that we've had, in verses 5, 6, and 7, three examples of apostasy that are corporate or collective in nature. Remember we had Israel? We had the angels that sinned, and we had Sodom and Gomorrah. Each one of those ideas was a collective group that we dealt with. Israel is God's people. The angels that sinned is another supernatural group. And then just secular society, Sodom and Gomorrah, but three different corporate groups. When we get to verse 11, we're going to have three individuals. That's next time. I don't think we'll get at it tonight, and that's... uh, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And that'll be your homework for next time. In the middle of all of this, we're going to have a very strange. It, it, oh, also, we have three marks defiling the flesh, despising dominion, and railing at dignities. We've talked a lot about that. Defiling the flesh, we've talked a lot about that. We'll talk some more, so we'll get into that day more tonight. Despising dominion, being iconoclastic, being rebellious at, at authority of whatever kind is another mark of apostasy. But this railing at dignities is not only a mark of apostasy, it apparently is so important that it is distinguished from the other in having a special example so, we sh- that, so that we don't miss the point. And that's what verse 9 is all about. And as you recall, when Jude opens this thing, he indicated he was going to write just a general epistle, but he was compelled, he was pressured by the Holy Spirit to change his whole style. And so this, this whole thing is a response to uh, a tremendous pressure on the part of Jude by the Holy Spirit. So it's a very directed epistle, structurally, and the message, and everything, all, every detail about it. And, and and the Holy Spirit has singled out verse 9 as an additional example on this issue of railing at dignities. Before we get to the point he's going to make, we, we stumble at first because we're not familiar with the content. You know, if I was going to make some point with you, it would be normal for me to take some illusion, some idea that you're all familiar with, and use that as an example to make some point. It'd be a little strange if I drew some example and make a point that you weren't all aware of. But I got a double problem. I got to make you aware of the background before drawing the inference of the background. So normally a, a writer or a speaker speaks of an illusion that is a point of common ground between he and his audience. And that apparently is what Jude was doing to his readers. Because his readers, you know, took for granted, he, he took for granted that his readers understood verse 9. And it's only our own uh, lack of a background here that causes us to really stumble. So we've got to take step one and find out what verse 9 is talking about before we jump in and uh, uh, have any real grasp of uh, the point Jude's making. We actually can probably infer what he's, the point he's making, but let's, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, see what we can find out about. It says, Yet Michael the archangel... When contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. He dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now this has to be the strangest example that Jude could pick. Because if you were going to rail at dignities, you could think of lots of examples that you'd certainly agree with probably are inappropriate. But surely the archangel of God who's on a mission assigned by God and being opposed by Satan would have some basis to to uh, let him have it, right? But even here, Michael dared not bring against him railing accusation. Michael, despite the fact that he's dealing with his adversary, has to recognize his rank. Interesting. I don't think we do that. I think we uh, have two enormous errors with regard to Satan. One is to ignore him and pretend he ain't there. That's a big mistake. The other mistake is to go the other way. Okay, two, there are two mighty angels in conflict here. They dispute. They, they, they disputed over the body of a creature lower, than, lower order than them, namely a human being, uh, and specifically in this case Moses. Now it's interesting that the angel who was faithful to his Creator Michael was not in any kind of left field here. He was apparently on a, on a mission, on an assignment. We're going to look into Michael here a little bit to see what kind of missions he takes on. And even though he was doing the will of God in obedience to divine command, and even though the devil opposed him seeking to avert God's purposes, in spite of all those facts, Michael did not uh, yield to the temptation to bring accusation, railing accusation against Satan, but simply said, the Lord rebuke thee couple of things here. First of all, you may be troubled by the idea that here in the book of Jude, we gain some new information, so to speak. You and I probably, other than this passage, would have no insight that Michael and Satan ever had a war over the body of Moses, certainly. And uh, the fact that Jude sort of gives it the back of the hand, I want to point out to you that this is just one of many cases in the Scripture where this kind of thing happens. Uh, We're going to see it happen again in Jude, later on, in verse 14 and 15. That'll probably be in our meeting after next, uh, when uh, we'll talk about Enoch. Most of us don't think of Enoch as a prophet, and yet he was a prophet before the flood, and uh, and, uh, Jude talks about that. We'll deal with that. But that's in effect a new insight, even though it's given in a historical context. How many of you knew that Noah was a preacher? You can read Genesis 6 and 7 all you like, 8, whatever. Uh, you will not find any allusion that Noah was a preacher. Certainly he uh, found grace, and certainly he had a mission assigned to him by the Father. But, but it's interesting that uh, it's in 2 Peter 2, five we have the reference made. Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Where did Peter get that? Well, from his ministry with Christ. Somehow it was revealed to him. It shows up in, our, in, in his second epistle chapter 2, verse 5, for those of you who want to make a note of it, that Noah was a preacher. So, there's another example. Uh, How many of you have heard that it's more blessed to give than receive? Have you heard that? That's fair. That's good. You know who, who said that? Jesus Christ did. Where? Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 35. Paul tells us that. By the way, in his letter to 2 Timothy, Paul tells us something else. Do you remember when Moses... Was before Yul Brenner there and had the uh, had the you know the the, the snakes and the, and the two magicians turned their rods into snakes. Remember that. What were their names? Janus and Jambres. Right, exactly. You won't find that in the Torah. You won't find that in the Five Books of Moses. But you will find it in 2 Timothy three eight. Paul, in writing to Timothy, mentions Janus and Jambres, the two magicians that Moses confronted, that withstood Moses, is the way it, it's expressed where does that come from? Here again it's a historical illusion that we get the insight, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in the epistles. Now Elijah, do you remember again under Ahab there was drought for three and a half years And, and, and Elijah predicted it and it was for three and a half years and it's a famous event in the ministry of Elijah during the days of King Ahab. But it isn't but for the epistle of James that we discover that it was a response to Elijah's prayers that they had the drought. We don't get that from, if you will, 1 Kings 17. We get that from the Epistle of James. Now I'd say the Lord makes reference to the same incident in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. But uh, the, the linking of the drought to a to Elijah's prayers is done by James in chapter 5, verse 17. So James apparently had the same kick that Jude did. That is, he would sort of make things mention things historical that uh, you should know, and yet you won't find in the Old Testament. So I mention that so you won't be troubled by that. Another place, by the way, and we won't take the time tonight, but just so you get comfortable with these ideas, if you really want to understand a lot about Moses and Pharaoh and that whole bit, in addition to what you find in Exodus, I commend to you Acts 7, when Stephen is speaking before the Sanhedrin. uh, Stephen will give you all kinds of insight into Abraham and to Moses that you won't get by digging through the Torah, or the, the, the book of Genesis. Example, it's it's Stephen's remark that tells us that the Pharaoh at that time was not Egyptian. We get that from Isaiah, if you know where to look, but it's very technical. The fact that Moses was learned in the, in the wisdom of the Egyptians, we don't get that out of Moses doesn't point that out for us in the five books of Moses, but Stephen tells that. Oh, that's all in Acts 7. So Acts 7 is a very interesting commentary of the Old Testament, and you probably make a list of a lot of things that are revealed there that you would have a tough time uh, unraveling uh, in the the Old Testament. So here Jude does the same thing. He gives us an insight of something that he presumes we know. Let's first of all approach this with what we do know about Michael and uh, some of the issues here. Michael is, of course, the archangel. Incidentally, uh, chief angel, it's always singular. There are not archangels, plural. There is one, uno. His name is Michael. Now, some people theorize that prior to his appointment, Satan may have had that role because of the anointed cherub remark in uh, uh, Isaiah 14. But the point is, in any case, at this stage, Michael is the singular Archangel, only one. His name means he who is like unto God. So the word Michael means. It's a very, very high name. Those of you that may carry the name Michael have a very proud name, very exciting name. It's interesting that Michael's name is the opposite of Satan, which is adversary. Now, the first reference to Michael is in Daniel chapter 10. And uh, just to refresh your memory, we won't take the time to go there because if we do, we'll spend too much time on it probably. But in Daniel chapter 10, you might make a note of that. It's one of the spookiest chapters in the scripture. Daniel is led to fast. He's praying and fasting for 21 days. And at the end of 21 days, he gets a visit. Or maybe we should look at it because it's important. It's too good to ignore, and yet if I do it from memory, I'll probably screw it up. So let's uh, uh, skim through here. In Daniel chapter 10, it opens up in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. He is uh, in prayer and uh, uh, he was in mourning, that is, in in, uh, sackcloth and ashes and fasting and so forth, for three full weeks and it describes that. He gets visited, verse 10 on, behold, a hand touched me and I sat on my knees upon my palms and my hands and so forth. It says, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words I speak to thee and stand upright for unto thee am I now sent. He says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself unto God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. In other words, he was dispatched to see Daniel 21 days ago, and he was held up. Verse 13, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. Now, the prince here is not the king of Persia, i.e. Darius or Cyrus or whatever. This is a spiritual prince behind the scenes, an invisible power. That was obstructing this messenger on his way to Daniel. Now, that's a, this is one of those glimpses that gives you creeps because you're gonna before the chapter's over, you're gonna discover there's apparently a prince of this type behind every major government, every major era, every major. There was uh, over every. Is there a prince of the United States? Apparently, and uh, we infer that we don't know that we infer that from the whole structure here. But it's interesting that this prince is one of Satan's emissaries, the ruler of the darkness, the ruler of this world, if you will. He said, withstood me one in twenty days. But what allowed this messenger to make it through this battle? He says, but lo, Michael, and it says one of the chief princes. That's that's, That's not correct. It's the first of the chief princes. The translation's unfortunate. He is the singular senior of the chief princes. So again, the word prince here is applying an angel. There's an opposing angel, one that's uh, focusing on Persia. But Michael, the, the chief prince, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And then he, he, he comes, and he's going to go on, and then he's going to explain how he's going to give, give uh, Daniel a, a, a series of visions. In fact, chapters 11 and 12 are really the result of this visit. But um, uh, he goes on here before the chapter ends here. Verse 19, and you know, a man... Uh, Greatly beloved, fear not, peace unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened, Daniel says. And let, uh, let my Lord speak, that thou hast strengthened me. And verse 20, then said he, knowest thou why I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Greece shall come. Many years after Persia, the next major empire was the Greek empire. And here already we see a prince of Greece is going to rise to power verse 21, the last verse of the chapter, "...but I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael your prince." Now here we see Michael introduced first time by name as the chief, the the first of the chief princes, and his specific identity is Daniel. He's your prince. Daniel personally? Not exactly. We'll discover as we learn about Michael that he appears to have the mission to fight for God's people collectively, specifically the nation Israel. You almost always see him associated with Israel. Another angel that goes by name is Gabriel, and you'll notice if you study Gabriel carefully that his role is almost always messianic. Gabriel showed up in Daniel 9 to give him the 70-week prophecy, but that was messianic. Gabriel shows up with Mary we're celebrating the Christmas season. That's Gabriel. Again, his mission is, is uh, messianic. That's the main idea is there. Now, oh, another place that you see an image of Michael, a very important passage, is Revelation chapter 12. Oh, before we do that, I'm sorry, before I get you out of here, turn to Daniel chapter 12, as long as you're this close, verse 1. I want you to pick up something in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 is quoted, a phrase of it is quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, when the, three, when the four disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, come to our Lord privately and ask him some questions, he gives them a, he gives them a prophetic briefing that's two chapters long in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 24 and 25 in Matthew, uh, 12 and 13 in, uh, in Mark, and uh, uh, 21 and 22 in Luke. The so-called Olivet discourse, but in that he uses a phrase that all of you know. But he he draws that phrase, if you will, from Daniel chapter twelve, verse one, which says, "At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people, the children of thy that people, that's Israel." <laughs> and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book." Now it's interesting that Jesus uses that phrase, "...there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was to this time, nor ever would be again, but for the elect's sake there would be no flesh saved," and so on. That phrase is drawn from Daniel 12. Michael shows up again very prominently in Revelation chapter 12. We've looked at this several times. I think it behooves us to look at it again. Revelation chapter 12, which describes these personages that surface. There's a, a woman, and we've reviewed this before. The woman is um, clothed with the sun and the moon on her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she's with child, and so forth. Many people try to make that woman the church. That's wrong. She's Israel. She's not the church for lots of reasons. She's well-identified from Genesis, and we won't get all that tonight. You can get that from the, the Revelation tapes if, if that's unfamiliar to you. Uh, but she she is in effect Israel in the sense that it started with Eve from Genesis 3:15 on. She's the woman bringing forth the man child, the deliverer. Now the opposition to all of this, verse three and four, is the red is the, is um, a red dragon. We don't have to speculate on the identity of the red dragon. He's, he's identified in verse nine. The great great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called devil and Satan who deceived the whole world was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. We've looked at that before. And uh, his tail, verse 4, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born. She brings forth a male child to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And we all know who that is. Now we get down to verse 7. We see uh, this is now going yet so far it's past. Verse 7 is future. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven." And uh, it goes on, and I won't fall into the uh, trap of trying to explain all of Reve- uh, Revelation chapter 12 tonight, but want to highlight that the key adversary here again, the head of the host, uh, the senior angel in charge, is a guy by the name of Michael commissioned to fight on whose behalf? Israel. Now, another synonym for the Great Tribulation Period that we so glibly talk about in prophecy is the time of Jacob's trouble. So it's kind of important to recognize that this Tribulation Period that we're talking about is really a focused Tribulation on Israel. And that's when Michael goes to to bat. Now, We've looked at Revelation 12 before. We recognize several things out of it, not the least of which is Satan's ambition and focus and goal and strategy is to attempt to thwart God's plan. And uh, so we have Michael as the agency to to, to go to, to battle here and Satan as, as an attempt to thwart him. Satan seeks to thwart God's program and Michael is God's agent appointed agent to overcome Satan's purpose. So that's the biblical background. We could spend more time, but those are the key, I've I've highlighted the key places where Michael and Satan show up. So far, so good. We're not troubled now with June talking about Michael and Satan contesting, but where we stumble is, what is this about the body of Moses? Why are they, either one of them, interested in the body of Moses? There are over 500 Old Testament references to Moses, but only one reference to his body. And so you say, what on earth is going on? Well, the first place to start, I guess, is to turn to that reference, which is Deuteronomy 34. It's almost at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and it shows up in verses 5 and 6. There's a preamble, we look at this a little bit, but Moses is scheduled to die. Moses has his ministry interrupted, and he does not get to go into the promised land because of the, uh, the 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 children of Israel listening to the ten spies back in Kadesh Barnea. They didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb who had the good report. They listened to the other ten. They lost their nerve. They didn't cross over when they had the opportunity. So God says, "Okay, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 38 years, nominally 40, but precisely 38 years." And so, it's at the end of that period, but Moses, and we're going to examine that in a minute for other reasons, Moses blows his mission. He doesn't do what God tells him, and God puts him in the penalty box, has him superseded by Joshua. Moses is allowed up on the high hill, Mount Pisgah or Nebo, it's the same period to get up there and see, look over the Jordan, and see the Promised Land from a distance. He can see the Promised Land, but he never he's not allowed to enter it, and he dies. And this is what's recorded here, verses 5 and 6. Now there's all kinds of scholastic debate. Did Moses write this prophetically, or did some other scribe add it to the, I mean here it's in the five books of Moses, I thought he died. Well, if you really need to talk about if you're trying to reach to create problems, either way, if you did it, I have no problem that Moses wrote this by inspiration before it happened. That's an approach. Or some faithful scribe added this as an appendage. I can't make a big thing one way. Down. I'm not getting into that debate. But the point is, in verse 5, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. This is across the Jordan. It's on the, on the east side. In the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. In other words, the Lord had said this was going to happen earlier. And he buried him. Who buried Moses? God did. Now, right away, that gets your attention. I'm always interested when God personally does it it without going through an agent of some. I love you like Noah's Ark. Who closed the door on Noah's Ark? Noah didn't. God did. I love that because I always like to ask questions. Could Noah have gotten out? I don't think so.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series... May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.